Well, good evening. Glad you're here. Thank you. Um, I suppose we could have a moment of silence. But we don't have to worry about the football scores anymore. Now it's just basketball. We're on to basketball. Uh, let's see. Nothing? Yahoo. Okay. Well, welcome back. I think we've been gone for about three months. That's what it feels like. But uh, we're back. We're into Exodus. And we'll... Uh, when's the next time we're off? It's like... Oh, yeah, Super Bowl. I learned a long time ago not to compete with Christ Chapelites on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, that is a lose-lose proposition. So we won't have uh, Sunday night Super Bowl, which is about February 2nd, 3rd, February 3rd, and then the next time will be around Easter. So uh, anyway, plan your calendar. Yeah, there's two great religious events, the Super Bowl and Easter. Gosh. You're not recording yet, right, Andrew? Good, 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 good. I don't want the elders to get a hold of that. That would be bad. Wow, what a great day. What a great day. Uh, hopefully you got to one of the services you watched online. Uh, an amazing day. Good day. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, what a day. What a great day. Thank you for your provision. Uh, thank you for um, your church. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for the way that you have um, made everything happen decently and in order, the way uh, you do things. Thank you for that. We're excited about uh, Cody coming into the role. We're excited about Ted uh, not leaving but transitioning to a different role. Uh, and thank you for, uh, just thank you. Uh, you are a good, good God and you are so good to us. We thank you. Uh, tonight, I pray your spirit would lead us, guide us, be our teacher as we go through Exodus. Uh, teach us what is in here and how it applies to us, please. And we pray for that tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Stephen, my older son, the artist and writer, uh, this is his interpretation, that doorway is, uh, you know, there's the death angel is over the doorway, uh, but those inside are protected uh, because, because of the blood of the lamb. And so anyway, that's, uh, uh, I don't know, what do you call that? Is it a? Yeah, you call it art. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you know what art is to an engineer? It's a blueprint. You know, it's got lots of nice straight lines and lots of, stuff. So sometimes we engineers struggle with, with art. We, we, basically, we just don't get it. It doesn't mean it's not good. We just don't get it. God didn't make us that way. But anyway, thank you, Stephen. Good interpretation of the death angel who passes over and passes by those with the blood on the door. We're in Exodus. The word that I've put on Exodus, not surprising to you, is redemption. I really think that is the big one-word idea of the book. 
And tonight's lesson, the bottom line, if you get nothing else out of the lesson, get this. God frees his people to follow him. God frees his people to follow him. There's a story. uh, Many people think it's a legend. I don't know if it is or not. um, Supposedly of Abraham Lincoln. And he happened to be walking past in his day, of course. He's trying to abolish and freeze the slaves. And he's walking past a particular slave market, notices a particular person who's uh, horribly, being horribly treated, horrible that they're even up for sale. And he purchases that person and frees her. And he supposedly keeps walking after the purchase is made and the woman comes up behind him and says, you know, something about, hey, wherever you're going, that's where I'm supposed to go. And he says, no, you're free. You're free. You don't have to follow me. And she said, thank you. I choose to follow you. Because of my freedom. Great story. That's the lesson for tonight. God frees his people so that they would choose to follow him. That's why he stepped into Egypt to free his people, that they would choose and say, I want to follow you. You bought my freedom. I now want to walk wherever you walk. God frees his people to follow him. That's the big idea for the lesson tonight. Let's uh, set the stage a little. Uh, One through four is sort of the story of Moses. Last week, or last week, last year. Last year we talked about Moses in one through four. God raises up his deliverer. And this week, as we go 5 through 12, we see who it is that he's going to deliver. God is going to work through him to deliver his people. God's people are growing increasingly desperate in chapter 5. They're enslaved by a very powerful Pharaoh. They're unable to rescue themselves from his power or from his persecution. They're without hope apart from God acting. They're feeling an increasingly desperate need for deliverance. So tonight, chapters 5 through 12, there's another little play, a little spiritual drama that's going to uh, be presented to us in chapters 5 through 12. The players, there are some key players. So if you had your, what do they call that? Program? Your play script, if you were sitting in the audience, you would have one of these and it would tell you who the players are. A playbill. Playbill. Playbill? I got you. (laughs) The players. A couple of main players here. First, Pharaoh. He is the god, in quotes, of Egypt. He's a murderer, a liar a bondage keeper, 
He rejects God's word and has contempt for God's people. Another key player, Moses and Aaron. They represent Yahweh, the one true God. Moses stands in the place of God, and Aaron stands in the place of his prophet. Remember, Moses said, I can't speak well. And God says, all right, then Aaron will be your prophet. You will be as God to Aaron. You'll take what I say, and you'll communicate it to Aaron, and Aaron will be your prophet. He'll be your spokesman. So we've got Pharaoh on the one side, and we've got Moses or Moses and Aaron on the other side. These are the two key players in these chapters besides God. The stage. Yahweh's people are prisoners in Egypt. Moses and Aaron make a request on Yahweh's behalf for the prisoners to be released. They provide an authenticating sign. Their request is refused by Pharaoh. Thus, Yahweh declares war on Egypt with the weapons of supernatural plagues or signs. What are the stakes in this drama? The firstborn of each god. Each god is putting up their firstborn in this contest, in this drama. Pharaoh Amenhotep II's firstborn son is one stake. Yahweh's firstborn son, Israel, is the other. These two gods, one real, one not, are going to go head to head. And these chapters are a description of the one true God dismantling what pretend gods look like. The stakes, each is putting up their firstborn son. Yahweh is going to um, use plagues as his weapons. So we need to ask ourselves, what were they? What were plagues? Well, they're called signs. They're supernatural miracles with special significance. Supernatural miracles with special significance. They're wonders. They're miracles producing or what should produce wonder or awe in those who witness them. They authenticate a messenger and a message. Interestingly, this is the first of three distinct periods in the scriptures where signs and wonders are used to testify to the truth of a message or the truth of a messenger. So imagine this little period, chapters 5 through 7 of Exodus, this is one. What happens? There are supernatural plagues that convince, eventually persuade Pharaoh to let God's people go. When is the second big season, if you will, of signs and wonders? Elijah and Elisha. 
because the nation of Israel is headed over the cliff if they don't turn around. God is going to deport them to Babylon. So he sends Elijah and Elisha to testify and validate, we are speaking for God and you've got to stop and turn around or it's going to be real disaster for you. Israel doesn't listen. They, in a sense, go over the edge, but God brings them back. When is the third great season of these signs and wonders? Jesus and the disciples testifying to Jesus' identity. He is the messenger. And what is his message? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you say, wow, okay, three great times in Scripture where a messenger, Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, are authenticated through these signs and wonders. They are the messengers of God and their messages are affirmed, confirmed, verified, validated by these signs and wonders. Just for fun, just for your general interest, you say, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. If you like to look things up in your Bible, and I think you do. Oh, sorry, it's not 2.14, it's 2.4. Who said 14? 2.4. Let me start in the let me chapter two verse one. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus Himself and then delivered to us by those who heard Him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Signs and wonders accompany validating, confirming, verifying a messenger, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus and the disciples, and a message. Let my people go. Turn around or it's going to be bad news for you. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. These major movements through the Bible are testified to by miraculous signs and wonders. This is the first period where these things happen. So God is authenticating a messenger, Moses, and a message, let my people go through these signs and wonders. Why did God use them? In other words, that's what they are. That's the purpose for which he intends them. So why does he use them? Chapter 7, verse 5, to reveal himself. So I'm back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, where he says, When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. If you got to one of the services today, you remembered, uh, you remember that Mark Bailey talked about God's desire is that every person come to faith in Christ. We know that that won't happen, but that's God's heart. 
What is his heart here that the Egyptians would know who he is, know the truth, and perhaps turn to him in truth? So he wants to reveal himself through these plagues. That's one reason. Second reason is obviously to deliver his people. Third, and very important, to receive from them. Why did God use these plagues to reveal himself, to deliver his people, and to receive from the people the joyful surrender of their wills to his? In other words, their voluntary allegiance, obedience, and worship. For example, Exodus 12, verse 27 Let me start in 20, verse 24. Remember these instructions are a permanent law. He's talked about the Passover that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land of the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, so he's instructing the people about the Passover. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. Why does God use plagues? To reveal himself, to deliver his people, and to receive from them voluntary allegiance, obedience, and worship. He also desires their service as his bond servant or his bond slave. Do you know what a bond servant is? You ever heard this before? Bond servant, bond slaves. Uh, today, I don't have my ears pierced, never have, but I watched Larry get hers done. I would not do it, for one. But if I were going to be a bond servant, I would voluntarily place myself under someone and say, I would like to be your bondservant. And that person to whom I had pledged my loyalty would take me... Hmm. Well, if this were a door, I'll go over here. Here's a door. They would take me to a door like this, and I would get my ear up against here somehow, and he would take an awl... You know, an awl? It's like a screwdriver with a point, like an ice pick. And he would put a hole through my ear, signifying that I was now a bondservant, a voluntary servant, a voluntary almost slave to the person to whom I had pledged my allegiance. Hmm? I would have a holy ear. Van, this is why I don't allow questions and comments. <laughs> he wants to receive from his people the joyful surrender of their wills, and that means their servants, their service as his bond servants. So that's what these things are. They're supernatural signs and wonders. I am of the opinion they are not natural phenomena that just happen to coincide together. I don't believe that's what these are. 
I believe they are declared to be miraculous signs and wonders, and that's what they are. God uses them to reveal himself, to deliver his people, because he would like to receive from them their service as his bondservants. Interestingly enough, what does Paul call himself in the New Testament? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is the picture he has in mind. Okay, we're going to go through a few rounds of these plagues. And God is going to, in each one, uh, as he opens his warfare against Pharaoh, uh, he's going to be seeking to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. That's the point of this warfare. Sort of like, remember in Job, when Job begins to kind of question God, remember God asks Job a few questions, to which Job wisely does not respond. Remember this? In Exodus, God is throwing out supernatural artillery, and he's waiting, it will never return, he's waiting for Pharaoh the, in quotes, God, to lob something back at him. If you're really a God, go ahead. Shoot at me. Knowing full well Pharaoh cannot do that. So God begins to persuade Pharaoh. Round one, he's trying to convince, he's trying to convince Pharaoh that he is Yahweh and Pharaoh is not. Pharaoh seems to have a little bit of a difficult time with this idea that he is not God. And so Yahweh begins very mm, gently to persuade Pharaoh. His first plague is the plague of water to blood. He gave a warning that that would happen, and he turned the Nile River, the life-giving force of Egypt, into blood including the things in their jars and vases. One of the things that the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston got right. I don't know that it happened exactly like that, but that, that was a good one. So the water turns to blood. He gives a, okay, and so then I wrote down, um, what is, how does Pharaoh respond to that? He hardens his heart. God goes back. He says, okay, I'm going to overrun your country with frogs. Now, there's a goddess named, many people think, and I agree with them, the goddess Heket, I'm not quite sure how you say that, Heket, who's the, god, the goddess of resurrection and fertility. So the god of resurrection and fertility is all over the place. In fact, you can't get rid of the goddess of fertility Remember, because there's frogs everywhere in their homes. They, can't, they cannot get rid of them. So who has he just shown to be a false god? Hecate. He says, hey, you think the Nile is a god? I just made it bleed. Uh, you think that goddess of fertility and stuff, you control her or you can make her do stuff? Not true. 
I just overthrew her. The plague of gnats, he gives no warning. He's given a warning, he's given a warning. What does Pharaoh do after the frogs? Hardens his heart. The plague of gnats, he, can't, he doesn't give a warning, and it even defiles the priests and prevents them from worshiping. So he says, I am Yahweh, and you are not. I am God, and you are a pretender. Go ahead, shoot back at me if you can. You can't. You would think after three of these plagues, Pharaoh would say, you know what, why don't I let the people go? No. Pharaoh decides that he would harden his heart after the plague of gnats. He's given some relief, and he hardens his heart again. So God says, fine, have it your way. I'll begin round two. Round two, I'm going to attack your whole land. I've tried to show you that I'm God and you aren't. Now I'm going to begin attacking your land, just like in a war. So he sends flies. He gave a warning that he would do this. And Israel and Goshen are not affected by these. Pretty soon, they start sending, the Egyptians start sending people up to Goshen to see if, what's happening up in Goshen? Oh, nothing. So it's hitting the entire land of Egypt except where the Israelites are. So he sends a warning, he sends a plague of flies. What does Pharaoh do? Hardens his heart. No one knows what this is, but it's probably anthrax. God seems to send anthrax against their cows because they had a cow deity and a bull deity. And so what's he going to do? Kill off all their livestock. I got, you got flies everywhere, which is really gross. How many of you spend, you know, five to ten minutes chasing down one fly in your house? One fly. Imagine you can't turn to the left or the right. You have to wear a mask because there's so many flies. And you, that would be so gross. Anthrax, he's wiping out their cows. Hey, can your god or goddess stop this? No. So he begins taking away all of their cattle. How does Pharaoh respond? He hardens his heart again. This time he gives no warning and he sends a plague of boils. They had various gods who were gods of health and healing. Guess what? the gods of health and healing could not overthrow or overpower Yahweh's attack, if you will. They should have, if, if the Egyptian gods were anything, they should have been able to pray or do whatever to their deities, and these boils should have been removed. They weren't. There is no remedy for these things. How does Pharaoh respond? Hardens his heart. God says, tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to go to round three. We've been through six. 
I've got three more coming that are going to show you that I am the God of the entire world. I'm not just the God of my people. I'm not, not just the God over you know, Goshen and Egypt. I'm not some regional deity. I am God of heaven and earth and everything in them. So he says, let me show you that I'm God over the entire world. So he sends a plague of hail with a warning. In this, he seems to be attacking the sky goddess Nut. I didn't make up the name. I'm just communicating it. He sends a plague of hail that the goddess Nut cannot seem to stop. He sends a plague of locusts, right? So the hail left just stubble around. So what does he do? Sends locusts that eat every other thing that's even green or has life in it. It's, it's, he's turning it into the face of the moon. The plague of locusts, which he also gave a warning for. They did seem to pray to a god who, is, uh, who somewhat looked like a locust. The final one, there is no warning, and it's the plague of darkness. This is a real problem for you if you're an Egyptian. Because you worship the sun. And their God, Yahweh, just turned off the light. And you, your God can't get it turned back on. That's a bad thing if you're an Egyptian right now. You're beginning to think, wow. <laughs> okay, this God is powerful enough to turn off the sun. And he turns it off for a number of days. What has just happened Genesis 1-2, darkness is around the land again. There's no light in Egypt. At the end of this, you would think Pharaoh would be knuckling under, and yet beginning in chapter 9, verse 12, after at least six opportunities for Pharaoh to let the people go, God, beginning in chapter 9, verse 12, begins to harden Pharaoh's heart in order to demonstrate through Pharaoh that he is God. He is no one to be trifled with. And I found, one, two, three, four, five. There's six times it seems Pharaoh hardens his own heart, followed by at least five times that God hardens Pharaoh's heart or leaves him in that hard condition. Pharaoh's heart toward God, toward God's people, and toward God's word is very, very hard, obstinate, um, opposed to God. His people are in the dark in the same way he, spiritually speaking, is in the dark. So God says, one more plague. And this will be the final one. For which he gives a warning. But he says, the firstborn will die. 
the firstborn of Pharaoh, or the firstborn of Israel if they don't listen either. The firstborn of Pharaoh, remember, is who is at stake in this battle. God warns and says, this is what I'm going to do, and here is the remedy. If you believe me, you'll do this, and you will save your lives. And you'll save the, life, the lives of your firstborn. If you don't believe me, judgment will fall. This time, Pharaoh hasn't submitted himself to God's word and God's will. Instead, he's hardened his heart and opposed God. And he also offers Moses for compromises over these chapters. First time he says to him, you know, why don't you just worship here in Egypt? Why do you have to go out in the desert? Just worship here. Moses refuses that. Then he says, okay, well, don't go too far away. Moses says, I refuse. Then Pharaoh says, well, leave your families in Egypt then. Moses says, no, we're not doing that either. He says, finally, Pharaoh says, well, then leave your flocks and herds here. You all can go like you asked, but you got to leave your animals and stuff here. Because if your stuff is here, you'll come back for it. So you can go, but you got to leave your stuff here. Moses says, aren't going to do that. It's either God's way or no way. Four compromises Pharaoh offers Moses. You know the story. The final plague is announced in chapter 11. The final plague is executed in chapter 12. For God's people, they are to purchase an unblemished lamb. They will find protection under the shed blood of that lamb. And they'll also find provision, food for the journey as they go worship Yahweh in the desert. That night, as you know, the Israelites, the Hebrews, follow God's word. The death angel passes over, kills the firstborn son of Pharaoh, and God's people, men, women, children, livestock, everything, leave that next morning. They head out as free men and women. Point. God frees his people to follow him. What did he ask the Israelites to do? Follow me. Follow me. Seems funny. Somebody else kind of comes along a little while later and says, come follow me, doesn't he? God has always freed his people that they would voluntarily follow him. God frees his people to follow him. Their redemption, as I'm sure you know, is a wonderful picture of ours. 
It was faith in God's word that led them to obedience, where they would purchase the lamb. It bought them safety from judgment through its blood and strength for the journey because the lamb was to be eaten, if you will, dwelling within them. They were also to eat unleavened bread in the Passover, not this particular night, although they did get out of town with flat bread. When they instituted the feast of unleavened bread, the unleavened bread was a symbol of a new lifestyle. Leaven does bad, leaven does great things to bread. Leaven as a picture of sin is bad. A little bit of leaven, if you've ever baked bread before, you don't use very much yeast, right? You don't use very much of that stuff. And what does it do? It gets through the whole loaf. And what does it do? It puffs it up. Remember when Paul says, love builds up, but pride puffs up? Because he's thinking yeast. He's thinking leaven. So leaven does Great things for bread, bad things for God's people. So unleavened bread is a symbol of a new lifestyle that should have no leaven or a pursuit of holiness out of it. And their, rede- and their redemption as well as ours ought to lead to worship and obedience. Now look at this. This is really fun. Some of you are picture people like me. Right. Can you see that? Can you all see this? Well, yeah, there's nothing there yet. <laughs> okay, now, now do you see that, Daniel? There's two circles up here. Who is in charge over Egypt? What does God tell them to do? So first, who gives them instructions, right? Is this something they dream up? No. God tells them something to do. He says, take a lamb. And what are we to do with the lamb? We're to sacrifice it. Sacrifice. It's blood will protect. Right? And what does this bring? What does this bring if I do these things? It brings life and freedom. As they say, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what's going on here. If you will, this is a horrible picture of a door. In the Reformation, we were taught by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Another way of saying the same thing is these people in Israel 
came out by grace. God said, do this by grace. He told them to pass through the door under blood. Right? I'm not making that up. That's what he says to do. Right? Who's in charge of the world? I know God is, but who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Oh, man. Really? What does God tell all humanity to do? There's a lamb, and it was sacrificed on Calvary. Whose lamb? God's lamb. Really? Yeah. Remember what John the Baptist says? Behold. Now, wait a minute. What did, what did he say about Jesus? Behold, one of the lambs? The. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does Jesus' blood do? It protects. What do we receive for this? Life and freedom. We are given an unbelievable picture through the Passover of what our Lord came to do thousands of years later. Same principles, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, they may not have exactly known who Jesus was. That's okay. God knew. And he takes care of it over here. Safety from judgment. Safety for God's people in the Old Testament and safety for God's people in the New Testament. The blood protects us. It gives us safety from judgment. His body gives us strength for the journey. You, John 6, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. Is Jesus a cannibal? No. What's he thinking of? I am the Lamb of God who has come to give you life and life more abundantly and to give you freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. What an amazing picture we have 1,400 years before the Lord himself comes as the Lamb of God who does take away the sin of the world. He does all of these things the good news of freedom. How are these people feeling? How did I start off tonight? They're feeling trapped, aren't they? For those who come to feel an increasingly desperate spiritual need for deliverance. Have you ever been there? I have. Way back in college. You begin to feel an increasingly desperate need for deliverance. Even if you've been going to church your whole life, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. 
If I slept in the garage, it doesn't mean I'm a car. Right? Just because I go to church doesn't mean I'm a follower of Christ. A follower of Christ begins to feel an increasingly desperate spiritual need for deliverance. He has come for those who realize they're enslaved by a powerful Pharaoh. Did you begin to know that something is wrong in your life, in your spiritual life? And you kind of thought, you know, it's like there's an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and you're... You're kind of going back and forth with this whole thing, you, but you begin to realize you can't do anything good. For those who've come to realize they're unable to rescue themselves from this Pharaoh's power and from his persecution, it's for those who know they're without hope apart from God acting on their behalf. That's the good news of freedom. That's how the Israelites were feeling. They were desperate for deliverance. They knew they were enslaved by a powerful Pharaoh. They were unable to rescue themselves from him. And they knew that unless God intervened, they were without hope. There was probably a time in your life when you came to feel some of these or all of these to various degrees. What good news of freedom. And what did God come to do? Give you life and give you freedom. And what does he ask for in return? Follow me. Follow me. Who purchased my pardon? The lamb. What did these people do once they found out they were free? They worshipped. What ought these people do when they discover they're free and that they have life and life eternal? What ought their hearts be singing every day? Hi. I want to follow you. How could I not want to follow the one who purchased my freedom? I want to voluntarily surrender myself to you, serve you as your bondservant. No higher purpose, no higher goal. Follow me. Just some fun little parallels here. The Exodus lamb was chosen before it was slain, so was Jesus. Spotless and without blemish, so was Jesus. Tested for four days. Jesus was tested for longer than that, but 40 days in the wilderness. The Exodus lamb was, of course, slain. So was the Lord Jesus. The Exodus lamb was memorialized in the Passover. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is memorialized in the Lord's Supper. For how long? He says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, until I come again. Then we won't celebrate the Lord's Supper anymore. <laughs> Is that amazing? I don't get it. <laughs> but that's what it says. 
This is a special meal we share with the Lord to memorialize him being the Lamb of God. He says in return, follow me. God frees his people to follow him. Certainly, there will be opposition. There will be antagonism. If you stand up for Christ, you will be at least bad-mouthed. There will be antagonism. If there isn't, you may want to ask yourself how high and how big are you standing up. You will experience unfair treatment. I've told you of a couple stories already in our times together. I know many, 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 many believers who have and are experiencing unfair treatment, perhaps because they're followers of Christ. You may too. There will be opposition, antagonism, unfair treatment, and there will be opportunities to compromise. You and I have family or friends or neighbors who will say to us just what Pharaoh said to Moses. You don't need to leave. Just worship God here. You don't really need to come out and be separate. Anyone ever heard something like that? You don't need to leave. Just be here with us, with the sinners. <laughs> and they usually laugh. Well, if you're going to leave, just don't go too far. I've heard about your Bible church. Man, you guys are fanatics. You're way out there. You make us all uncomfortable. We don't like feeling uncomfortable. So you really don't have to go that far. And please don't be a fanatic about it. Because we feel bad. You know what? Why not just leave your family here? Just have a spiritual compartment on Sunday and do whatever you want. Go back. But Monday through Friday, don't bring Jesus into the workplace. He's for Sundays. Do whatever you want Saturday. But don't bring him here. Or keep some treasure in Egypt. I want the best of both worlds. If I can keep one foot over here and one foot over there, maybe that's the way I need to live my life. The same compromises that Pharaoh offered Moses are the same compromises this Pharaoh offers to you and to me. You don't have to be that separate. In fact, you see on the news about the people who are that separate and that fanatic, right? And you don't want to be like them because you know how we feel about them. Just live in a compartment. 
Knock yourself out on Sunday. Don't bother us Monday through Friday with your Jesus. Keep some treasure in Egypt. That'll keep you from getting too far. You've had friends. You've had neighbors, maybe even family, who have said one or more of these things to you. And you have been tempted to believe them and think, you know, that makes sense. Tonight, I hope it no longer makes any sense. And you see it for what it is. It's an opportunity to compromise, to keep pursuing the Lord, because God frees his people to follow him. He did in the Old Testament. He does in the New Testament. He frees us. He gives us life to follow him, not to do as we choose, not to just think about him Sunday, not to try to have one foot in both worlds. He says, come, follow me. And where does he make me leave from? He says, get out of here and never come back. I don't want you going back there. Back there is bad. <laughs> come and follow me. We'll be talking about that more over the next couple of lessons as we get into Exodus. In case I haven't been concrete enough, some of you are looking at me like, Bill, what's your point tonight? Here's the point. In the privacy of your own mind and prayer closet, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 to 5, green light, yellow light, red light, <laughs> I don't care what scale you use, but I want you to ask yourself an honest question on that scale. Am I compromised? Have I compromised? I know people who say, you know, someone said, uh, share the gospel with my actions, and if necessary, use words. That person may not have ever have said that, number one. Number two, that's not biblical. Dr. Bailey encouraged us and reminded us to be men and women of character, Christian character, but guess what a proclamation involves? Your mouth and words. Live your life as a Christian. Live out the gospel in front of people. And not if necessary, but and use words. Guess what? Your life condemns those people and they know it. That's why they don't want to hear from you. You may be the very splinter that God's going to use to get that person to think about spiritual things. And you know what it's going to bring you? Antagonism and opposition. Oh, yeah. What did it bring Jesus, by the way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come follow me, he says. Come follow me. I don't know what that looks like in your world. I think you're big men and women, and you can figure that out. But I want you to ask yourself tonight and this week, where, where am I on my own scale Have I thought to myself, it's okay to not separate? 
Do I just not want to go too far? I don't want to be one of those fanatics. Do I live in compartments? Am I too caught up in my stuff? What if God gave me an opportunity? Could I leave some or all of my stuff if that's what God asked? Could I? I'm not your God. You stand or fall to your own master. You don't stand or fall to me. It's not what I think. I got to stand in front of him the same way you do. Just ask yourself the question, where are you? You're starting off a new year, 2019. Are any of your New Year's resolutions having to do with holiness, with separation, with going a little further, with breaking down some of the compartments in your life, with how you're handling your resources? And there's no, there is no accusation on my part against you about any of these things. They're simply questions I ask myself questions I leave with you for tonight. God frees his people to follow him. Let's continue to wrestle with that this week. For next time, read Exodus 13 through 18. We'll keep the story moving forward. Exodus 13 through 18. We will see you in a week. Let me pray for us. And we'll be on our way for tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the marvelous pictures you give us of what the Lord Jesus accomplished in the fullness of time. Thank you for the ways that that encourages us. This is your word. You are its author. You put it all together, and it makes sense. And we can see it with our own eyes where you left us little pictures And then where you showed us the reality in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the work that you've done uh, to bring us to a place where we realized we were under Pharaoh's dominion and control and persecution. And when you gave us eyes to see and faith to believe and you invited us uh, through the finished work of your son to follow you and to become one of your adopted children. What a privilege. Uh, Father, now uh, the salvation part that you have accomplished is finished and it's behind us and you've given us life and freedom. Uh, Father, I know tonight I have to confess the times that I have uh, been so lukewarm uh, in my relationship and my walk with you. Uh, I pray in 2019 you would uh, encourage us and empower us all Uh, through your indwelling spirit, uh, to just take another step uh, toward becoming more like Jesus uh, as we feed on him and take him in and allow him to be inside of us through your word. Would you do some great things in us and through us this year, not for our sake, but for your sake. For the glory and the fame of your name, not ours. We ask for these things and pray for them, please, as your brothers and sisters, as your adopted children.